Bestbookbits.com brings you the book summary of The Ultimate Guide to Body Recomposition, How to Build Muscle and Lose Fat at the Same Time by Jeff Nippard. As Beverly Sills points out, there are no shortcuts to any place worth going. As you will see, body recomposition, building muscle while losing fat, is not quite as straightforward as merely losing fat or merely building muscle. In our opinion, achieving both of these goals at the same time will require more attention to detail and a more optimized approach than your typical run-of-the-mill bulking or cutting diet. Chapter 1, The Start Line Everything should be made as simple as possible, not simpler, Albert Einstein. In some sense, every day is a new beginning, a new start line to reassess, adjust, and aim to improve. We would rather proclaim, pay attention to how you start, because it will not only determine how you finish, but determine your fulfillment along the way. As we see it, one of the reasons so many people end up not finishing what they started is because they didn't start the right or most optimal way. If you've heard that you must be in a calorie surplus to gain muscle, or that you must be in a calorie deficit to lose fat, you have once again been nudged towards oversimplification. Unless you are a dietary masochist, restrictive and rigid diets simply aren't sustainable. Recognize your starting place. Like most facets of life, experience matters. To get where you want to be, you first need to know where you are right now. Your starting line will most likely be different than others, meaning the route to your endpoint may also differ. With this understanding, pause and decide where on the beginner veteran spectrum are you currently positioned. Your experience level both in the gym and in the kitchen is going to significantly impact how detail-orientated you need to be with your approach. Beginner, 0-2 years of lifting experience. The truth of the matter is, a true beginner can concurrently build muscle and lose fat quite easily. This is because as a new lifter, your physiology is most primed for muscle growth that it will ever be. Recomposition is both easier and simpler for a beginner. As long as you meet the three criteria outlined below, you should be able to build muscle and lose fat as a beginner without the same level of optimization that an intermediate or advanced trainee would need. Your caloric intake isn't too high or too low, meaning you are eating either in a small caloric deficit or a small caloric surplus. We will revisit specific examples later when we set up the diet. Your protein intake is adequate. We will outline the specifics in Chapter 8 when we set up macronutrients. You will weight training with a focus on progressive overload, incrementally adding either weight, volume, or improving technique over time. We will later outline the specifics of training for recomposition. Intermediate, 2-5 to five years lifting to advanced 5 or more years of lifting experience. Progressing toward the other end of the spectrum, the longer you've been resistance training, the closer you are to your genetic potential. If you are a weight room veteran, you will have to fight for continued progress. We believe this is where the often overlooked and oversimplified details of nutritional science really move the needle to optimize results. Understanding Recomposition To be clear, when we say body recomposition, we refer to reduction in body fat percentage alongside an increase in lean body mass, more specifically muscle mass. In both men and women, this is mostly commonly achieved under four circumstances. New lifters, beginners. Detrained lifters, detrainers, obese individuals, and anabolic steroid users. Understanding recomposition, one layer deeper. Three possible scenarios that will all count as body recomposition. Number one, you build muscle while simultaneously losing fat. Number two, you build muscle mass while maintaining body fat mass. Or number three, you lose fat while maintaining muscle mass. Chapter 2, The Tools of Titans. Give ordinary people the right tools and they will build the most extraordinary things. Measuring weight loss is super simple. Stand on a body weight scale. If the number is going down, you're losing weight. Good job, assuming you're cutting. Measuring weight gain is equally simple. Stand on the same scale. If the numbers go up, you're gaining weight. Good job, assuming you're bulking. Measuring body recomposition is a bit more tricky, however. How exactly should we do that? 
Well, having the number go down on the scale might hint toward fat loss, but then how are we supposedly to tell if we're gaining muscle or not? Similarly, having the number go up on the scale might hint toward muscle gain, but how are we supposed to tell if we're not merely gaining fat? As a third possibility, maybe the number of the scale stays exactly the same. Does that imply that we're gaining muscle at the exact same rate we're losing fat? This would be the perfect recomp, but then again, maybe it means that progress has completely stalled and we're neither gaining any new muscle nor losing any fat at all. Yikes. Mandatory tools. This compartment of our metaphorical toolbox contains four key tools, body weight scale, measuring tape, camera, progress photos, and a food scale. Number one, weight scale. For consistency purposes, we recommend tracking your body weight for four seven days per week at the same time of day for consistency purposes. For the most accurate weighings, we suggest weighing as soon as you wake up, after using the bathroom, and before drinking any water or eating any food. Using those four to seven body weight measurements, you will tabulate a weekly average. You will then compare the weekly average to future weekly averages to determine whether your weight is trending up or down over time. Number two, measuring tape. The yin to the weight scales yang is the old school measuring tape. A measuring tape will be used to obtain two primary bits of information, waist circumference and other body measurements, shoulders, glutes, chest, legs, arms, and calves. Number three, camera, progress photos. Sometimes referred to as the bodybuilder's selfie, progress photos may be the most valuable tool of all. Rather than consistently checking yourself in the mirror, which can lead to false and inaccurate assessments due to changes in lighting, level of hydration, etc., we recommend taking progress photos at regular intervals with consistent lighting and camera setup. We recommend taking progress photos one to four times monthly. Number four, food scale. Tracking macronutrient, fat, carbohydrate, and protein intake is a very powerful and effective way to manipulate body composition. Due to the dehydration effect cooking has on many foods, we recommend weighing food raw before cooking since this is a more precise way to measure. For the sake of convenience, we recommend tracking your food intake through mobile apps like MyFitnessPal, MyMacros Plus, FitGenie, or Calorie King. Special Tools now that we've looked inside the mandatory toolbox, we would like to describe three special tools that can be used under certain circumstances, but may also be more inconvenient for some. Number one, skin calipers. Number two, bioelectrical impedance, PIA. PIA sends a low-level, imperceptible electrical current through the body to estimate body fat mass in relation to lean mass. Roughly speaking, because fat mass and lean mass have different densities, the electrical current will travel at different speeds through different body tissues to register information about body composition. And number three, dual energy X-ray absorptiometry, DEXTA. A DEXTA scan sends a beam of low-dose X-ray energy through the body, separating body composition into three components, bone mass, lean mass, and fat mass. Chapter 3 belief busting. A wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. The calories in versus calories out debate, also known as is calorie a calorie debate, has been the source of many an internet brawl. Clearly calories and macronutrients matter for body composition, but we definitely cannot say that they are the only things that matter. In a nutshell, energy balance is a relationship between the calories you consume by eating food and the calories you expend by exercising, having a heartbeat, digesting food, fidgeting at your desk, running to the car, etc. A calorie is simply a unit of energy, and energy balance simply refers to the relationship between energy coming in and energy going out. Over a specific time scale, energy balance is said to be positive if you're storing more calories than you are burning. Generally speaking, this means you are in a caloric surplus and should gain weight. Conversely, energy balance is said to be negative if you are burning more calories than you are storing. In this case, you are in a caloric deficit and should lose weight. Again, for the most part, bigger caloric surpluses will lead to faster weight gain 
and bigger caloric deficits will lead to faster weight loss. Put simply, the energy balance equation in relation to calories and weight loss looks like this. Weight change equals calories in, take away calories out. In other words, if your goal is to simply lose weight, then you need to focus on eating fewer calories and or burning more calories. If your goal is to simply gain weight, then you need to simply focus on eating more calories and or burning fewer calories. But since you're reading this book, it's probably safe to assume that you, what you really want is to lose fat and gain muscle, not to merely lose or gain weight. Depositing and withdrawing. For the sake of being as precise as possible, it's worth noting that fat and muscle tissues have different energy densities. Because muscle is made up mostly of water, it has much less stored energy than fat does. One kilo, which is 2.2 pounds of muscle, contains 1,800 calories, while one kilo of fat has 9,400 calories. Let's run the net energy balance math on the example above. Assuming you were to lose 20 pounds, 9.1 kilo of fat, while gaining 5 pounds, 2.3 kilo of muscle over a full year. 9.1 kilos of fat loss equals 85,540 calories lost. 2.3 kilos of muscles gained equals 4,140 calories gained. Net energy balance equals energy gained, take away energy expended, equals minus 81,400 calories. In other words, in order to achieve this body recomposition, you must have been in a 81,400 calorie deficit over the course of the year. Since there are 365 days in a year, that would amount to 81,400 yearly calorie deficit divide 365 days equals a 223 calorie deficit per day on average. The point to take home here is that despite being in a net caloric deficit, muscle was still gained. Providing that the energy balance equation does not imply that fat loss and muscle gain cannot occur at the same time, they simply can. The power of belief. Whether you think you can or think you can't, you're probably right. The first reminder of just how powerful self-imposed cultural groupthink can be is the four-minute barrier imposed on runners prior to 1954. At the time, society as a whole submitted to the belief that it was humanly impossible for anyone to run a mile in less than four minutes. That was until in 1954 when Roger Bannister broke through this barrier of perception. Since that famous day, thousands have accomplished this previously impossible goal. Body recomposition is ultimately achieved through the construction of new tissue, muscle, and the breakdown of other tissue, which is fat. Chapter 4, Decoding Metabolism. Recall from the previous chapter that we're setting up the energy balance equation like this. Weight change equals calories in, take away calories out. The calories in part of this equation is very straightforward. You eat food, and that pretty much covers that segment. The calories out aspect is much more complex and requires further explanation to understand how each of those two factors influence body recomposition. When scientists or fitness enthusiasts speak of metabolism or metabolic rate, they're usually loosely referring to a total daily energy expenditure, TDEE, the total number of calories you burn each day. It is sometimes referred to as your net metabolic rate. As shown in the chart below, three key factors determine the number of calories we burn each day. Looking at the chart, you can see total daily energy expenditure, TEF. Number one is your basal metabolic rate, also known as your BMR. Two, physical activity level. And three, thermic effect of food. Physical activity level, BMR. Figure 4.A, three components of your total energy expenditure, TDEE. Let's have a look at each of the three components of your metabolism separately to gain a better understanding of how we burn calories. Number one, your basal metabolic rate, also known as your BMR. Your BMR is essentially how many calories your body burns per day in order to perform all of its basic metabolic functions and maintain its body mass at rest. If you sat on the couch all day long and did nothing but breathe, this would be roughly the number of calories you burned. As shown in figure 4.A above, 
your BMR typically accounts for 50 to 70% of your daily energy needs. Two, physical activity levels. The second component of your metabolic rate is captured through how many calories you burn by moving around. For most people, daily physical activity makes up 20 to 35% of total caloric expenditure. These values can be lowered if you are more sedentary or higher if you're more active than the average. It's worth highlighting that this component of metabolism is not limited to the number of calories you burn while performing exercising, lifting weights, and cardio. It includes the calories burned from all your daily activities, including typing at your desk, bringing groceries to the car, and singing in the shower. The calories burned from these non-exercise activities make up NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. NEAT can vary greatly between individuals, directly impacting the number of calories they burn through daily physical activities. If you live a very sedentary lifestyle and have fat loss goals, it would be important to create some active habits to increase levels of NEAT. Number three, thermic effect of food. Sometimes referred to as dietary thermogenesis, the third component of your total daily energy expenditure is the amount of energy expended by breaking down and processing food for use and storage. Simply put, your body burns calories as it digests, absorbs, transports, and stores food that you eat. Just as each macronutrient carbohydrates, fats, or proteins provides us with a different number of calories. See table 4.8 below. They also require different amounts of energy to digest, absorb, and utilize. Because of this, each macronutrient has a different thermic effect. It's important to understand that each macronutrient provides us with a different amount of energy calories. As seen in the chart below, and each macronutrient differs from a thermogenic standpoint. Looking at the macronutrient fat, carbohydrates, and proteins, we can see that fat has 9 calories per gram, carbohydrates has 4 calories per gram, along with protein, 4 calories per gram. On the right side, you'll see the thermic effect, which is ranked of fat. It's the lowest. It burns the least calories while being digested and absorbed. Carbohydrates is second, which is medium, and protein is highest, T. EF, which is the thermic effect, which burns the most calories while being digested and absorbed. Protein is the most thermogenic macronutrient. This means eating a high-protein diet will result in more calories burned because it requires more energy to digest and absorb that protein. This is one of the many reasons why high-protein diets typically result in greater fat loss and better improvements in body composition, even when caloric intakes are equated. This fact serves as another example of why the expression a calorie is a calorie fails to capture the more complex and nuanced ways in which each of the different macronutrients are handled by our bodies. 200 grams of sweet potato and 43 grams of Gatorade will both deliver roughly 40 grams of carbohydrates. However, the thermic effect of these two foods are quite different. Your body will expend more energy digesting and absorbing the carbohydrates from sweet potato than it will the Gatorade. Chapter 5, Setting Up the Diet Calorie Intake Failing to plan is planning to fail. When setting up a diet that will cause the simultaneous loss of one tissue, fat, and gain of another tissue, muscle, we need to consider four different dietary tenets, organized in order of importance. Number 1, calorie intake. As mentioned previously, whole body changes in energy balance will be driven primarily by total calorie intake. Number two, macronutrient breakdown. After determining calorie intake, it is critical to know where those calories are coming from. In chapter eight, we set up the best ratios of protein, carbs, and fat to optimize muscle mass and training performance. Number three, nutrient timing and meal distribution. Once we know what calories and macros will yield the best body recomp, we need to figure out how to organize those macros into meals so that we can maximize muscle gain slash retention and fuel performance and recovery. Number four, food sources. 
where our calories and macronutrients are coming from also matter for driving positive body composition changes forward. We will discuss this in the context of nutrient quality in chapter 9 and 10. Calorie intake, how many calories should I eat? Exactly how many calories you need to eat for body recomposition will depend primarily on three individual factors. Your primary goal, your current body composition, and your level of training experience. Number one, your primary goal. Obviously, the goal with body recomposition is to build muscle and lose fat, not to pick one or the other. However, we think it's important that even if you have the goal of achieving both, it is still important to pick what goal is more important to you. Number two, current body composition. Your current body composition ties in strongly to your primary goal factor. Surely, people with a higher starting body fat percentage will be wise to select the primary goal of losing fat, and people with a low starting body fat percentage will be wise to select the primary goal of building muscle. Number three, training experience. As mentioned previously, the more training experience you have, the closer you'll be to your natural genetic limitation for muscle mass, and consequently, it will be more difficult for you to gain lean mass. Conversely, someone who is still relatively new to weight training will be able to gain muscle mass much faster. And number four, other factors. While the three primary factors outlined above will mostly determine how many calories you should eat, whether you should be in a caloric surplus, deficit, or at maintenance. There are still few other factors that may influence this decision. Biofeedback. Throughout the process of recomping, it's important to pay attention to biofeedback, your recovery and hunger. If your training volume or intensity is higher than normal, for example, it may be necessary to increase your caloric intake during this period of increased training demands. Also, sometimes an amplified training stimulus will result in an increased appetite, perhaps as a signal that you require more nutrients to fuel proper recovery. Hitting your target. When it comes to making nutritional recommendations for weight loss or weight gain, it is common to see a specific number of calories added to or subtracted from maintenance. For example, it's commonly suggested that if your goal is to lose one pound of fat per week, you should eat 500 calories below your maintenance. So assuming you maintain your weight on 2,500 calories, you eat 2,000 calories per day, you will supposedly lose about one pound per week these suggestions are usually based on the concept that there are 3,500 calories in one pound of fat. However, research indicates that this figure often overestimates predicted weight loss and undermines the adaptive nature of our metabolism. Carb slash calorie cycling and refeeds. For the purpose of this book, we would define a refeed as a 24-hour period during which caloric intake is increased, normally through increased carb intake. Generally, refeeds are employed in dieters for four main reasons. To acutely improve training performance, which is often impeded on low-calorie-slash-carb intakes. To provide a mental break from the monotony of a fat loss diet. To acutely reverse some of the negative hormonal adaptations associated with low caloric intakes and low body fat percentages, such as reduced leptin and to improve adherence to the diet. Number one, a linear approach, no refeeds or carb cycling. A linear approach to daily caloric intake means that you will eat the same caloric intake and the same macros every day without refeeds, high carb days or calorie cycling. This approach will be most appropriate for anyone with the primary goal of building muscle and in a calorie surplus. Sometimes the best approach from a psychological perspective is to simply enjoy the occasional free meal or cheat night and get back on track the next day. In the grand scheme, the occasional missed day will not hold you back as long as you don't allow it to derail your overall commitment to the plan. Number two, logical carb cycling, non-linear carb intake. For those who are either in a deficit or at a caloric maintenance and are seeking to optimize every area of their diet, we are suggesting a logical carb cycling approach. As a simple rule of thumb for those taking the non-linear route, we recommend reducing total daily carb intake by to approximately 20% on non-training days. You may also utilize the logical carb cycling approach by increasing your calories 
primarily via carbs on a day your caloric expenditure is abnormally high. Ultimately, our goal is to empower you to be your own scientist with your own physique. Our aim is to give you the tools and knowledge to set up your own diet without getting too attached to black and white suggestions. Chapter 6, The Art of Self-Coaching If you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. Theodore Roosevelt Below is a reminder of how frequently you should be using the mandatory toolkit to assess progress. Frequency required for mandatory tools. Body weight scale, 4 to 7 times per week to calculate a 7-day average. Circumference measurement, bi-weekly or monthly. The less experienced you are, the more frequently you should implement. Progress photos, 1 to 4 times per month. Higher frequency for those with less experience as progress is typically faster. If it's not broke, don't fix it. In general, we recommend doing a complete self-assessment once or twice a month, where you take a look at the collective data from your toolkit. If the tools collectively indicate you are making progress with your primary goal, then we recommend not adjusting the plan. If it's working, keep going. Making adjustments more frequently than this can result in flip-flopping on your goals, paralysis by analysis, and less reflective judgment. Consider a few examples of when it would not be appropriate to adjust calories. You're losing fat. You're building muscle. You're losing fat and building muscle. Next, consider some examples of when it would be appropriate to adjust calories. You're not losing fat. If your primary goal was to lose body fat and after one month you find that your waist circumference is up or unchanged, your progress photos are looking exactly the same and your weekly body weight average is the same or up, then this feedback indicates that you have not lost fat, although you may have built some muscle. In this case, since your primary goal was to lose fat, an adjustment to caloric intake may be required to get fat loss moving at a faster rate. You're not building muscle. If your primary goal is to build muscle and after one month you find that your body weight is the same or down, your waist circumference is unchanged or down, and your progress photos are looking a bit leaner, but not more muscular. This feedback collectively indicates that you have lost fat, but you may not have built much muscle. Chapter 7, The Skinny Fat Dilemma The best project you will ever work on is you. Skinny fat is a popular buzz term used to describe someone who is of normal body weight but has a higher level of body fat. In visual terms, it would describe the individual with low muscularity but relatively high body fat. You will define a skinny fat male as having more than 20% body fat with a low muscularity and a skinny fat female as having more than 35% body fat with a low muscularity. One important thing to note is that most people who lack muscle mass don't have much resistance training experience and as such are far away from their genetic potential. For both body composition and health purposes, we generally advise that reducing body fat percentage by set as a primary dietary goal while the weight training and high protein intake drive the muscle building process. Depending on whether you are more skinny than fat or more fat than skinny, it may be more important that you focus on losing fat first. Building muscle first or do both concurrently. Below is a schematic of our recommended approach depending on which boat you find yourself in. Skinny fat, what is more important to you? Look bigger or look leaner? If you want to look leaner, phase one is 10 to 20% deficit. Train smart with high protein. Then phase two is caloric maintenance. Then over more time, 10 to 25% caloric surplus. Both equally, which is phase one, 10 to 20% deficit, train smart, high protein, and over time, go into a phase two caloric maintenance. And then after that time, optionally enter a 10 to 25% caloric surplus. And then on the other side, look bigger, phase two, maintenance calories, train smart, high protein, and then over time, go into phase three, which is establish new primary goal and caloric intake, and then optimally enter 10 to 25% caloric surplus. As you can see in the figure above, as your body composition improves, you will enter different phases of your recomposition. 
Below were outlined one such example of a skinny fat individual who prioritized looking leaner first. In phase one, lower fat body percentage, which was 10 to 20% caloric deficit. Phase two, which was gain lean muscle and lower body fat percentage, which is caloric maintenance. Now that you've achieved a lower body fat percentage, it is time to transition to caloric maintenance so that muscle can be built at a faster rate. This may require recalculation of your current caloric needs based on your new body weight, body composition, and activity levels as covered earlier in this chapter. And then phase three, establish new primary goals, which is 10 to 25% caloric surplus. At this point, you have prioritized fat loss in phase one, lowered your body fat percentage while increasing muscle mass more substantially in phase two, and may now be ready to prioritize a faster rate of muscle gain by entering a caloric surplus. At this point, we recommend gradually increasing your total calorie intake up to around 10 to 25%. Chapter 8, Unpacking Macros and Micros. The history of modern nutritionism has been a history of macronutrients at war, protein against carbs, carbs against protein, and then fats, fats against carbs, Michael Pollan. Macronutrients. There are three key macronutrients which make up the calories we consume in food. The prefix macro refers to the nutrients of our bodies use in big amounts to function properly on the scale of grams. The macros we will discuss in this chapter are protein, carbs, and fats. Micronutrients. Micronutrients, on the other hand, are nutrients like vitamins and minerals that our bodies use in small amounts on a scale of milligrams. The six micronutrients commandments aim for at least three to four servings of green vegetables per day, aim for at least two servings of fruit per day. Try to regularly eat a variety of fruits and vegetables of different colors and rotate food sources. Consume fatty fish once or twice a week, otherwise consider fish oil supplements. Eat a varied balanced diet, if eliminating grains, dairy or meat, consider supplementation of vitamin B12 vitamin D, omega-3 fatty acids, iodine, iron, calcium, and zinc under the guidance of a medical professional. Generally, stick to a whole food, minimally processed, nutrient-dense diet. How much protein should we eat for recomp? The amount of protein you need to optimize your body composition is a controversial topic that is being continuously researched and updated by scientists. What we do know for certain is that protein is the most essential macronutrient when it comes to repairing and building muscle. We also know that protein is the most thermogenic macronutrient, meaning it leads to more caloric expenditure than carbs or fats. In addition, protein tends to be the most satiating macronutrient, meaning you will feel fuller for a given number of calories consumed. The combined effect of these properties is that protein is essentially the super-macro, it is the most important for both muscle gain and fat loss. When it comes to body recomposition, we believe that protein is king. As alluded to above, protein is the best muscle building and the best fat burning macronutrient. For this reason, we think it is far better to have too much protein than too little. How much protein you need to eat depends not only on your body weight, but also on your body fat. Looking at the image, you can see a man going from 8%, 12%, 15%, 25% to 35% plus in body fat percentage. And also a female, 15%, 19%, 20% 25%, 30% and 35% plus with body fat, which is figure 8, a visual representation of various body fat percentages for both male and female. Our sliding model for protein intake First up, there is a direct evidence that increasing protein intake leads to body recomposition. Several studies have shown that very high protein intakes, protein overfeeds, lead to body recomposition by either reducing fat mass, increasing lean mass, or both. The higher your body fat percentage, the less likely you are to lose muscle in a calorie deficit because there is more limited fat for fuel. Therefore, we propose that the leaner you are, the more protein you need to eat to preserve or gain muscle mass. 
This is why we recommend a sliding protein target, ranging between 1.2 to 1.6 grams per pound of lean body mass. This sliding scale takes into consideration your current body composition. The leaner you are, the closer you want to be to 1.6 grams per pound figure. The more body fat you have, the closer you want to be to 1.2 grams per pound figure. Figure 8.A, the sliding model of protein intake based on your lean body mass. Protein intake summary. Eat 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass, which is LBM. Calculate your LBM using your body weight and your body fat percentage, low fat, low carb, or either. Historically, fats and carbs have both been praised and demonized. Currently within fitness culture, there seems to be a divide between those who hate carbohydrates and those who hate fats. Without getting too off-topic over the respective roles of each of these macronutrients in the body, it's important that we not view either nutrient as good or bad. We believe that both carbs and fats play an important role in fueling training performance and driving positive body composition change. To keep things simple, fats are essential for survival and carbohydrates are not. This means that we must consume dietary fat, whereas our metabolism can adapt to a complete absence of carbohydrate intake by shifting the primary energy source to ketone bodies. Still, just because we can survive without carbs does not imply that eliminating them from the diet is the most effective route to body recomp. Most folks still assume that dietary fat intake is the root of all body fat storage. Many people fear that eating fat will make them fat. Because of the many metabolic pathways that depend on fat availability, it is much more likely that fat phobia will hinder your body recomposition goals rather than help them. We recommend that as long as body recomposition is the goal, one should never eliminate any macronutrient entirely. All three macros should be present in harmony with one another at the appropriate intake for the individual's needs and goals. How much fat should we eat for recomp? The amount of fat you should eat for recomp will depend on three main factors. Your current body fat percentage, your activity level, and your personal preferences. We generally advise that 20 to 35% of your total calories come from dietary fat. By ensuring you never drop your fats below 20% of your total calories, you reduce your risk of becoming deficient in fat-soluble vitamins, and experiencing negative hormonal side effects, such as reduced testosterone. The higher your body fat percentage, the lower your insulin sensitivity. Thus, the higher your starting body fat percentage is, the lower your carbohydrate intake should be. Therefore, we suggest that with higher levels of body fat, stay toward the higher end of our recommended range of 20 to 35% of total calories. Moreover, you should take your activity levels into consideration when determining how much of your caloric intake should come from fats. Those that are more active would benefit from a lower fat intake, as they can more easily utilize carbohydrates for energy, while those with less active lifestyles will be better off with a higher fat and lower carb intake. How much carbohydrates should we eat for recomp? Carbohydrates are our body's preferred energy source as they are utilized most efficiently, especially for those of us who are not fat adapted or in a state of dietary ketosis. Moreover, carbohydrates are a great tool for improving training performance, as plenty of research has shown that extreme carbohydrate restriction can negatively impact strength training. Similar to determining dietary fat, it's also important to take into consideration your daily activity level, NEAT, lifestyle, and dietary preferences so as to improve sustainability and adherence when setting up carbohydrate intake. Chapter 9, Solving the Mysteries of Protein Protein quality, what food sources are most anabolic? Are all proteins created equal? In short, no. Protein quality is typically defined based on its amino acid profile. Generally speaking, complete proteins are food sources which provide you with all the nine essential amino acids. These essential amino acids are exactly what they sound like, essential. We need to consume them in our diet for proper functioning 
and survival as they play critical roles in various metabolic pathways. One such pathway we'll discuss in detail is muscle protein synthesis, which is MPS. This process of synthesizing or building new muscle protein requires that all nine essential amino acids be present. Since skeletal muscle protein is itself made of these nine essential amino acids, the same way we cannot build a brick house without bricks, we also cannot build muscle without essential amino acids. Why are BCAAs so popular and what purpose do they serve? On the topic of branch chain amino acids, which is BCAAs, it's no secret they have become one of the most popular sports supplements on the market. Perhaps this is because the three BCAAs, leucine, isoleucine, and valine, have been identified as the key amino acids for initiating muscle protein synthesis. Suggested protein sources. Below are a list of high-quality, protein-rich foods that we recommend including in your diet regularly. These foods were selected based on the completeness of their amino acid profile and total leucine content. Protein sources list. Whey protein, eggs, egg whites, meat, chicken, beef, pork, turkey, elk, game, etc. Dairy, i.e. yogurt, cheese. Vegan protein powder, rice and pea blends. Soy protein isolate, seaweed, spirulina. How many meals should I eat per day? We generally recommend splitting your protein up across multiple meals per day so as to maximize the anabolic potential of each meal. From an optimization standpoint, we believe that spreading protein intake more evenly throughout the day will have a better effect on both maintaining and building muscle than skewing your protein intake to be eaten in just one or two massive meals. Intermittent fasting. So everyone is on the same page. Intermittent fasting, IF, is a dietary practice in which you extend your fasting period, thus consuming fewer meals per day. This can come in more extreme forms such as having only one meal per day and less extreme forms such as having an eight-hour eating window, which ultimately amounts to just skipping breakfast. The less extreme version, for example, might involve having three to four meals between 12 p.m. to 8 p.m., and then fasting for the remaining 16 hours of the day. If using intermittent fasting, we recommend that you still try to space your protein out more evenly across your eating window. For example, if you were restricting eating from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m., you could eat a serving of protein at 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 5 p.m., 8 p.m., so you can still stimulate NPS four times per day. Protein timing. When are the important times to eat protein? First, it's important to acknowledge that if you are already hitting your total daily protein targets and eating four to six high-protein meals per day, the specific timing of those meals is of relatively less importance. We believe that the exact times that you eat your meals can be dictated largely by personal preference, scheduling, and your own biofeedback signals, such as hunger and society. A note about fat. While fats are essential for survival and can positively impact your health in many ways, we think they have a relatively smaller role in optimizing body composition than protein and carbohydrates. It would be short-sighted to avoid dietary fat out of fear of having them make you fat. We also suggest that you limit and avoid trans fat whenever possible because of their negative impact on the heart. Suggested fat sources. The fat sources list salmon and other fatty fish or fish oil supplements, whole eggs, seeds like flax seeds, chia seeds, etc., nuts like walnuts, almonds, macadamia nuts, peanuts, etc., and nut butters, peanut butter, almond butter, etc. Chapter 10, Solving the Mysteries of Carbohydrates. The three most harmful addictions are heroin, carbohydrates, and a monthly salary. Carbohydrates are a non-essential macronutrient. Unlike protein and certain fats, you can technically survive without eating any carbs for the rest of your life. Carbohydrates also do not have the same anabolic properties as protein since they do not directly impact muscle protein synthesis. Despite this, 
Carbohydrates still play a critical role in the body recomposition process by fueling training performance, which will ultimately drive muscle growth. All carbohydrates have a few things in common. They are all made up of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen atoms, hence the name carbohydrates. They all hold about 3 grams of water per gram when stored as muscle glycogen, and they all taste amazing for the most part. Suggested carb sources. We recommend an 80-20 rule when it comes to food selection. Ensure that about 80% of your carbs are coming from whole, minimally processed foods such as those below. The other 20% can be filled in with foods you personally enjoy or find convenient. Carb source list. Whole wheat bread, oatmeal, brown rice, long grain rice, all rice derivatives, e.g. cream of rice, rice crisp, crisp cereal, etc. Legumes, peas, beans, etc. Starchy vegetables, potatoes, carrots, corn, quinoa, wheat derivatives, all fruit, kiwi, bananas, apple, oranges, all berries, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, etc. All fibrous vegetables, broccoli, spinach, kale, lettuce, etc. Chapter 11. The Nutrient Workout Link. Workout, eat well, be patient, your body will thank you. Pre-workout nutrition. In our opinion, this is the most important meal of the day for your body recomposition. As such, we will give it the most attention. Optimizing the pre-workout meal will ensure that you are properly fueled to perform at your best and generate the ideal anabolic environment to maximize the muscle building process. As such, there are two primary purposes of the pre-workout meal. To fuel training and to create an anabolic environment for building muscle. The importance of hydration. An underappreciated and often neglected component of fueling your training is proper hydration. Research has shown that a mere 3% dehydration status can significantly decrease strength, total volume slash reps, and recovery between sets all while increasing perceived exertion scores. The workout feels harder. Post-workout nutrition. While the post-workout anabolic window has gotten more attention than it deserves in bodybuilding circles, a post-workout meal still has a meaningful role in the pre-workout trio of feeding. Since the primary goal of the post-workout meal is to begin the recovery process, we will start with the most anabolic macronutrient protein. Protein, the most important aspect of post-workout nutrition, is stimulating muscle protein synthesis and sparking the muscle repair process for tissues that was damaged during training. To this end, we recommend consuming approximately 0.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight in the post-workout meal, ideally coming from a complete protein source such as whey, meat, poultry, or fish. Carbs. A second objective of post-workout nutrition is to replenish glycogen stores. Chapter 12, Cardio. To do or not to do. Remember that with the goal of body recomposition, we are trying to build muscle and lose fat. The muscle building component will be taken care of primarily through progressive resistance training and adequate protein intake. The fat loss component will come primarily through establishing a caloric deficit. Such a caloric deficit can be achieved by reducing your calorie intake by increasing activity including cardio or through a combination of both. On a typical weight loss program, cardio is often prescribed to help impose a caloric deficit so the individual doesn't have to excessively restrict calories from the diet. Frequency. While it will depend on the individual, we generally recommend keeping formal cardio sessions within the 5 sessions per week range. In general, it seems that the majority of your training energy should be allocated to weight training, since this is what will ultimately drive muscle growth. Furthermore, your fat loss goals should be achieved primarily through dietary measures, rather than over-reliance on cardio. Intensity Research has also suggested that higher intensity cardio is more likely to interfere with muscle building goals, especially when performed frequently. Lifestyle factors. Assuming fat loss is your primary goal, it may also be worth considering your lifestyle and daily activity levels to help determine how much 
and what kind of cardio would be best for you. If you live a more sedentary lifestyle, have a job that requires you to be seated most of the day, incorporating some cardio into your daily routine will likely improve your overall health, decrease stress, and ensure you are using physical activity to augment your diet. On the other hand, if you work a labor-intensive job and your NEAT is much higher, construction worker, landscaper, etc., additional cardio would most likely be unnecessary and more likely to impede your muscle-building goals. Chapter 13, Settling the Supplement Dilemma It's important to note that supplements are not required to improve body composition. They are, by definition, supplemental. Investing more time, energy, and money to improve in your training and nutrition will positively impact your physique far more than any natural supplement ever could. Which supplements should you consider taking? Not all supplements are created equal, and while this may seem pretty obvious, when viewing the vast landscape of supplements available on the marketplace, tier number one. Tier one is where the three factors of safety, efficacy, and cost really shine. Not only are there mountains of quality research to support these supplements, but they are also fairly inexpensive and most likely to make a meaningful impact on your performance and or physique. Protein powder. Supplementing your diet with high quality protein powder is a convenient and effective way to reach your daily protein target. High quality whey protein at any time of the day, casein protein, especially before bed, and vegan protein powders such as soy, pea, or brown rice protein powder are all practical options to add to your diet arsenal. Creatine. Being the most studied supplement in the world, the data on creatine is very clear. Creatine significantly improves strength and power performance, enhances muscle hydration, and increases muscle size. The International Society of Sports Nutrition deemed creatine to be the safest and most effective ergogenic aid. More recent data has even shown it to have neuroprotective properties as well. Caffeine. Caffeine has a large body of evidence supporting its use for cognitive function, increasing strength, prolonging fatigue, maximizing acute fat oxidation, sparing glycogen, and much more. Tier 2, the supplements in this tier, multivitamins and fish oil, are unique as their effectiveness will depend much more on your overall diet. For most people, you can think of supplements in Tier 2 as a kind of insurance policy. If you have low dietary quantities of omega-3 fatty acids or a certain vitamin or mineral, taking these two supplements will help you ensure your overall health requirements. Multivitamins. Research reveals that it's not always easy to get the micronutrient requirements from food alone, especially for athletes. Fish oil, essential fatty acids, Tier 3. This tier is where we will cover supplements that have the potential to be beneficial, but the effect is relatively small, the results are mixed, and there is a low quality and or low quantity of studies supporting their use. Green tea, ashwagandha, alcitrullin. Chapter 4, Sleep and Stress, the Dark Horse of Body Recomp. Sleep is the golden chain that ties health and our bodies together. Up until now, there has been no talk of two painfully underrated variables that can impact your recomp success on an enormous scale, sleep and stress. We're calling these combined factors the dark horse of body recomp because they are so infrequently acknowledged as the major factors that they are. While many of us may wish it wasn't true, in terms of both muscle gain and fat loss, we cannot possibly overstate how critical sleep and stress are to your success. Sleep. Despite the fact that today's culture seems to glorify lack of sleep, as if sleeping less were synonymous with hard working, disciplined individuals, the reality is that just because you prioritize sleep doesn't mean you're lazy. In fact, sleep is extremely important. Sleep extension. Sleep extension has also been the subject of much excitement in the sports world, especially at the elite level, one such study on the elite Stanford University NCAA men and women's swimming teams found that when swimmers extended their sleep to 10 hours per night, their average sprint time, reaction time, turn time, and kick speed all improved, with many of the swimmers setting personal school NCAA records throughout the study. 
but how much sleep do we need for body recomposition? The National Sleep Foundation recommends 7-9 to nine hours of sleep per night for young adults and adults seeking general health and well-being. However, based on the benefits seen in the literature in terms of performance and recovery with sleep extension and the fact that resistance training imposes a significant recovery demand, we recommend a slightly higher target of 8 to 9 hours of sleep per night to optimize progress. Stress. If you like us, you probably noticed how stress negatively affects what would otherwise be routine endeavors. Exam time, tax audits, a death of a loved one, a major illness, a job loss, or being the subject of a nasty rumor can all rain down on our well-being, including our muscle-to-fat ratios. Lifestyle stress can take a profound toll on recovery from training. It is a fair conclusion to say high stress levels are not doing your body recomposition goals any favors. Suggestions and tips. In dealing with the stresses in my life, I often resort to two main forms of relief, meditation and an activity that invokes a state of flow, being in the zone. Chapter 15, Weight Training. The Driving Force of Body Recomposition. The barbells and dumbbells you hold in your hands and the way you use them have stories to tell. Let's start this chapter by saying that it's easy to lose fat by using diet alone, but nearly impossible to build muscle without weight training. This fact has led many experts in the field to conclude that when it comes to building muscle, nutrition is permissive to weight training. This means that you can have the most optimal diet, eat the ideal amount of perfectly distributed protein every day, and you still won't build any appreciable muscle without a training stimulus. As such, we believe that weight training can be considered the driving force of body recomposition. To better understand this, let's use the analogy of a car. We can think of our training as the engine and our nutrition as the gasoline needed to fuel performance. The better the fuel, macronutrients, micronutrients, nutrition timing, etc., the better the performance. However, without the engine, the car simply won't move, regardless of the fuel's quality. We can then think of other variables such as sleep and stress management as the tune-ups, oil changes, and tire rotations required to keep the system moving along. Progressive overload is key. Progressive overload is the gradual increase in the amount of stress placed on the body from exercise. In other words, if no greater stress is placed on the muscle over time, the muscle has no reason to grow in order to overcome that stress. In its most basic form, progressive overload simply means doing more over time. Practically speaking, this usually takes the form of simply adding more weight to a given exercise from a workout to workout. However, there are several different ways to apply progressive overload. Increase the load, increase repetitions with the same load, increase sets, improve form, increase rep duration, such as by slowing the eccentric slash negative. When it comes to progression, we urge you to prioritize quality over quantity. The concept of progressive overload, more specifically, progressive tension overload, is effective mainly because it provides a simple method for increasing mechanical tension, a key player in muscle hypertrophy. Volume is a driver of growth. At the most basic level, training volume refers to the amount of work you are doing, while volume load is calculated in the scientific literature according to the formula sets x reps x load. In particular training circles, it is usually approximated as the number of working sets, not including warm-up sets, performed per session or per week. Training hard. Another way that training volumes differ is in the terms of how hard the sets are. Should we be pushing sets all the way to failure, or should we stop shy of failure? It is clear that if you want to make continued progress past the beginner level, it's important to put in a high level of effort when training. This does not imply that every set should be taken to failure, since consistently taking sets to complete failure can lead to overtraining and reduced overall volume, potentially hindering growth. As a general rule, we recommend leaving one to three reps in the tank on most compound exercises. Isolation exercises can be taken more routinely to failure with the same risk of fatigue accumulation. 
However, we still recommend reserving failure for the last set of any given exercise. What is the best rep range for muscle growth? Practical hypertrophy zone where the majority of working sets should come from. That particular rep zone is 6 to 15 reps. We suggest allocating approximately 75% of your weekly training volume to 6 to 15 rep zone. Training frequency and training splits. It seems that as a whole, the scientific literature suggests that training each muscle twice per week is better than only training each muscle once per week. Whether or not frequencies higher that are better seems to depend on the individual. The upper lower split, which is for beginner and intermediate. Day one is upper, day two is rest, day three is lower, day four is rest, day five is upper, day six is rest, and day seven is lower. The upper lower split for immediate to advanced. Day one upper, day two lower, day three upper, day four lower, day five upper, day six lower, and day seven is rest. And that's a wrap on this book summary, The Ultimate Guide to Body Recomposition. Tell me what you think in the comments below. If you want to copy this PDF summary, click the link below to download this. We at Best Book Bits have done over 1,000 book summaries in video, written, and audio format. So check us out at bestbookbits.com. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and follow us on Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for watching and listening. Have yourself an amazing day. And if you want to sponsor the channel, go to bestbookbits.com and go to products and services. We have everything from ebooks, books, courses, coaching, and everything you need. So have a great day. Take care. Go out there. Hope you got something from this book summary. Bye-bye now.